you know, I have a bit of an interest in uh, genealogy, the study of family history and family trees, and I know some of you do as well. It seems to be a pretty popular pastime, uh, not least for we Kiwis who have at all, uh, at all some stage crossed the oceans or the skies to settle here in this land. I wonder if you've enjoyed, as I have done, the um, BBC series, Who Do You Think You Are?, which I gather is now up to its 20th series, uh, where various celebrities have their family history traced. And invariably there'll be some surprises and some fascinating discoveries, occasionally a bit of scandal, and uh, not a few tears on the way. But just about without fail, it seems to give those who are involved in it a stronger sense of their own identity and of being part of a bigger family picture and story. And that seems to be important, I think, in these days when many feel you can create your own identity or persona and uh, change it as often as you like. I was uh, looking at a new youth resource put out for studying the Bible the other day and was intrigued that it was framed around the question, who am I? And then it used the Bible to encourage the young person to find that they were loved and chosen, created, forgiven, known by God, with a purpose and with unique gifts and abilities. So that question, who am I, seems to be a crucial one in a world where it seems we're told we can be anybody we like. So isn't it interesting then when we come to our gospel reading, Jesus is asking a similar question of his disciples, but not at this stage about who they are, rather he asks them, who do people say that I am? And his disciples are very happy to give him the word on the street, the latest gossip. Well, people are wondering if you're John the Baptist somehow come back to life or Elijah, who in Jewish belief was due to return to prepare the way for the Messiah, or perhaps Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Now, any of those would have been a pretty bold claim about Jesus, painting him as a prophetic figure, a revolutionary perhaps, raising hopes that he might be some sort of freedom fighter or zealot and try to get away with as much as he can before, like so many other would-be messiahs being swiftly put down by the threatened Roman and Jewish authorities. Jesus pushes them a bit further though. Who do you say that I am? And I wonder whether there was a bit of a, bit of a sort of a silence, a bit of a shuffling of feet. And then as ever, dear Simon Peter is willing to go out on a limb and blurts out, you are the messiah the son of the living God. Let's just pause as we let that momentous statement sink in. We need to note where we are in Matthew's gospel, both geographically and in the structure of the gospel as well. We're just over halfway through Matthew's gospel, which we are looking at this year. So we're 16 chapters through of 28, and here we are at a point of transition. And where are we geographically? Well, we're at a high point, literally. Jesus has taken his disciples off to the highest point at the north of Israel, uh, to the region of Caesarea Philippi, on the slopes of Mount Hermon, 
about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, so not too far really from Syria and today's Golan Heights. And uh, I've been uh, part of the way there, and it's, I think it's now a national park, but it's certainly uh, quite uh, rural and isolated. Jesus has gone bush, if you like. So in some ways you'd think, well, maybe that's a safe place to talk about issues of identity and messiahship. There probably aren't too many people around eavesdropping on this conversation with his disciples. But it's also a place with a, a cultural and a religious history of its own. Mount Hermon is the source of the River Jordan, which then runs all the way down through Israel. And the springs there were associated with worship of the pagan god Pan, of Panpipes fame. It's also a very risky place for Jesus to accept from Peter's lips the title of Messiah. Uh, Jesus is well aware that that Messiah title, heralding a Jewish king, would be a direct threat to the local ruler, who's one of the Herods, Herod Antipas, who's really just a puppet ruler uh, in place there for Rome. And it's also somewhat of a cheek, if not a direct challenge, to be declared Messiah in a place called Caesarea Philippi, named for Caesar the emperor, who was openly worshipped as the son of God, and Philippi, named for King Herod the Great's son, Philip. So a bit of a dodgy uh, title there. No wonder that when Peter hails Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God, Jesus sternly orders the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. And you might think that's a bit strange, but Peter was so right, but so wrong. Yes, Jesus is the Messiah, but Peter thinks he's got Jesus sewn up in that Messiah box with all its accompanying hopes of being the human king who will rescue Israel from their Roman oppressors, throw out the Romans, and bring in God's kingdom in great power and might. So right, but so wrong. For as we'll hear next week, actually, Jesus begins now in the gospel to teach his disciples and to define for them just what sort of Messiah he will be. He will start predicting very soon his coming suffering and passion. And he will begin to live out that suffering messiahship. He'll become what his words say. But that's next week. Meanwhile, Jesus has something to say to Simon that will redefine who he is. And not least, he gets a, a new name. So Simon, son of Jonah, becomes Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. Now that's quite a good pun, Jesus. But it's actually even better in the original Aramaic, which Jesus was sleeping, uh, speaking. You are Kephar, and on this Kephar I will build my church. Same word for both. In the Greek, there's actually a wee bit of a nuance. It's actually a bit like saying Petros is a pebble, a little stone, and on this boulder, I will build my church. So it's a bit like saying, well, yes, Peter, you're a chip off the old block, but there's still a bit of a gap between what you are now and what you will become as leader of the church. But I think that gives us hope. 
we know full well that Peter will fail and he will fail his master spectacularly and yet Jesus keeps on calling him Peter. He never takes that name away and he calls him to become rock. Even when he acts more like a stumbling block, Jesus will soon say to him, get behind me, Satan. And yet Jesus will keep calling Peter, become rather a stepping stone to enable the faith of others. Peter himself, in a rather lovely way, in his first epistle, picks up that rock image. And it's lovely for us in the stone church. He says, come to Jesus, a living stone. And like living stones, let yourself be built into a spiritual house. On this rock, I will build my church, Jesus says. That's actually the first time we hear that word church in the Gospels. The church is in Greek, the ecclesia, uh, literally those called out to serve God. And that's where we get words like ecclesiastical, which I always used to love to use as for hangman when I was a child. Um, sorry, that's a clergy kid. Um, ecclesia, the called out ones. And it's actually the same word as was used in Hebrew, the kahal, the assembly of the people of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures. So now the church too is called out to be God's people and to serve God. That's the image, of course, that Paul takes up for us in our epistle reading to the Romans, great chapter. We, the church, are not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed and literally in the Greek, metamorphosed, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. And remember, that's a process. It takes a while. We're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds so we may discern what God's good, acceptable, and perfect will is. And we're transformed together. All these verbs are in the plural. It's a pretty powerful image, isn't it? One I'm quite fond of. I quite enjoy uh, getting... Uh, monarchs from caterpillars into butterflies. But it's also, I think, quite a challenging journey, no doubt, if you interviewed that caterpillar, and just as challenging as the call to be a living sacrifice. Some uh, wise person once said to me, the trouble with a living sacrifice is that it's forever trying to crawl off the altar. So what does it mean to be a living sacrifice together? We're called to bring ourselves afresh to God. Living as we are, we come in self-offering. As we offer our gifts, as we sing our offertory hymn, as we call it, it's also time to offer ourselves. And as we come to communion, as I always love, with our hands outstretched, we come and offer ourselves again to receive from God and to give ourselves to God. And we come together as the body of Christ, with all our gifts that differ, called by name as individuals, but also called to be church together, the body of Christ. Thanks be to God.